wants it for the end zone. It's intercepted in the end zone by Diane Gawolaku. Down the near sideline. 30, 35, 40. Right corner, Eli. Pulls, fires, scores from three. Elijah Bryant swishing it from the corner. Rolls it past the defender. Gets into the 18, shoots him. Near post, score! Avery Walker! The voice of the Cougars is talking BYU sports with the players and coaches past and present who've made you rise and shout. And this is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143. Here now is your host, Greg Rubel. Hello and good Wednesday evening, Cougar Nation. I'm your host, Greg Rubel, back with you for another weekly edition of Behind the Mic. We are inside Studio 2 at the BYU Radio Studio Complex inside the BYU Broadcasting Building on the Brigham Young University campus in snowy Provo, Utah, for another hour of Cougar Conversations. As our listeners now know, I visit each week with a current and former BYU sports and sports media personalities, and we hope you've enjoyed the variety of perspectives shared over the last seven months since this show's debut. If you are listening to us live, you are joining us across the country on satellite via BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, or around the world on BYURadio.org and the BYU Radio app. If you're listening on demand, thanks for podcasting us via our Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel podcast feed or on our Behind the Mic show page at BYURadio.org. And a reminder, BYURadio.org and the BYU Radio app are your online portals to all of the programming on BYU Radio, live and on demand, including our weekly Dave Rose Coaches Show and the daily episodes of BYU Sports Nation. This week on Behind the Mic, some basketball and some football. As tonight, we visit with one of the newest members of the BYU football coaching staff, offensive line coach, and former college football national champion as a player, Ryan Pugh. I'll also be chatting with former BYU hoopster and overseas professional Trent Playstead. My interview with Trent is tonight's Catching Up with the Cougars segment, sponsored by BYU alumni. But we start tonight's show by welcoming into Studio 2 for the first time my occasional broadcast partner, the former BYU point guard and assistant coach, Vancouver, Washington's own, Terry Nashif. Terry, welcome in Behind the Mic. Greg, it's great to be here. Uh, really excited for this. So we are on the road together this week to Portland, a homecoming trip for you. It's great. I, I love being on the air with you, love traveling uh, to Portland. Um, typically when we go there, it's great weather. Not seeing that so far in the uh, forecast, but we've still got a day or so before that could change. Life on the headset for you. This will be your fifth of five games. When Mark Durant can't do a game, you've been pinch hitting this year, so this will be your fifth of five games you've done as the game analyst. How have you enjoyed the experience? I'll already say that I've immensely enjoyed working with you. I've really loved it. Um, it was interesting to to see how it would go the first time. Hadn't done it before, uh, obviously at the games in a different role. And it's been great to to talk about what I see in the game. It's been great to work with you and learn from you. And uh, it's really been enjoyable to tell people uh, how it works behind the scenes and explain to them uh, what kind of professional you are and the preparation that goes in. And I've really enjoyed um, really enjoyed telling people what I see. You've made the transition recently from coaching to a private enterprise to business. How has that particular transition gone for you in your life? It's been great. Um, I'm a competitive person and uh, business development or sales, you find those same uh, competitive juices uh, when a deal closes or you can help someone. And, and one thing that I've really enjoyed is that when I was recruiting at BYU, I love BYU and I could go into these homes and tell these kids and parents, this is the best place for you to be hands down. 
And I felt that deep inside of me. I really did. And uh, it's the same in business with the product that we have. It's a great product. And when I go and tell people, this is really going to help your business, it really is. And so it's, it's been a smooth transition for me, and I really enjoy it. And so what are you doing, and who are you working for? So I work for a, a visible supply chain company uh, in Salt Lake. We have a variety of different products. Um, but we help people in the e-commerce world and, and in shipping and make sure that products get to consumers quickly. And uh, shipping is really complicated because on purpose. The national carriers really try to confuse. It's expensive. Um, and then there's a lot of companies that try to make it even more confusing so that they can make money off the consulting aspect of it. And that's what I like about our companies. We'll actually go and consult without trying to make money on it. The way that we benefit is by volumes that we can have. And so we can save people, save people money and then tell them what's really going on and what the national carriers are trying to do without uh, having a hand in it and saying, oh, well, if you save, we save you money, you need to give us a portion of that. That's not the case. If we save you money, your business is going to benefit, and that's great, and we don't want a piece of that. So uh, it's, it's been really enjoyable, and I've learned a lot about shipping, and um, it's, it's analytics in a different way, and I really, really like it. You left the coaching world last summer, and that ended a roughly 17-year personal history with BYU. Uh, was it tough to step away considering how many years you'd been on this campus? Absolutely. I love BYU. You just listened to the intro uh, here. Uh, it, it makes me emotional. I love this school. I love this program. I love football. I love basketball. I'm a sports guy. Um, really enjoy listening to you and and. It's uh, It was hard to step away. It's been nice to stay close. Uh, obviously a big fan, able to watch and, and go to the games with my kids, explain to them what's going on. And uh, It's been really enjoyable for me. My daughter just started basketball for the first time and going to her games and you know explaining what, what's happening. The first time she got out on the court, she didn't really understand. <laughs> and and uh, it's funny because she's been to so many games, but uh, it's been enjoyable. I miss it. Uh, I love BYU. But you're able to stay close to it uh, when we get to do games together, which is fun for you, I know. Absolutely. And keep my mind sharp, watch films, see what's going on, know what to expect, try to give the listeners uh, some insights into why the coaches are making the decisions they're making. Oftentimes when I watch broadcasts, uh, it, it appears that people are trying to explain to the listeners why the broadcaster is smarter than the coaches. <laughs> and I, I've wanted to take the role of explaining to the listeners why the coaches are making the decisions that they are. And they're smart decisions. This is what's going on. This is why they're adjusting the way they are. And this is the adjustment that the other coach made. And so hopefully that, that's coming across to the listeners. Now, you've, you've brought a great perspective to the broadcasts in that way. This is the stretch run time of the year in, in college basketball. And you'd gone through it as a player and as a coach. And normally this meant that you were getting pr- primed for a tournament run of some sort, conference tournament and or NIT slash NCAA, you did them both as a player and a coach. I think it's a really important time. Um, Watching uh, the games right now, you can see that some players and some teams are getting a little bit tired, and they're getting a little bit tired of each other, a little bit tired of the coaches, a little bit tired of the grind. You can tell some are in conference races, some are not, some are preparing for that tournament. Um, and, And I see that a little bit with with BYU and these West Coast Conference teams as I watch these games. And one thing that's come to mind is that there isn't a bye week. And there's, in most conferences, almost all conferences, there's a bye week. And in the West Coast Conference, it's the same thing every week once conference starts. And you can see that in some of these West Coast Conference teams, watching St. Mary's after that Gonzaga loss. And there's some teams that need a bye week. And what that bye week does is it rests your bodies, it gives you a couple days off, it changes the voice. And uh, that's apparently not happening. Hmm. And you can see that. And so I I think that's one thing that comes to mind with this stretch run is there was always a a little bye week built in there. And that will come 
you know, after this week of play where there's a, you know, basically a Thursday off for most teams. And so that that will be next week. It'll be interesting to see how that affects the tournament. Although BYU goes road home this week, Portland-Gonzaga. It's the fourth straight season. BYU's ended the year with two games against those two teams, Portland and Gonzaga. We've got the Portland game at Child Center, and then the Zags back here on the weekend. Someone likes to give BYU-Gonzaga that last game of the year every year. And I don't think it's Coach Few, so... <laughs> Um, one thing to look for and to, to note in that game is that Gonzaga is going to come in playing for a conference championship and it'll, you know, what we would assume it would be an outright possibility and BYU has the chance to play spoiler. Which we've done. Yes, <laughs> uh, continually. And I like the way that uh, BYU matches up against Gonzaga. I like the way that they played them in Spokane. And uh, the Zags, hopefully, you know, it'll, it'll stay close and the Zags will get a little bit tight. And uh, you didn't see that in the Gonzaga-St. Mary's game. There wasn't time for them to get tight. They were wanted revenge. You yeah. saw it in the first game there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully that happens. Uh, we've seen that over the years. And I'm excited for that game. I'm excited for Thursday to see uh, BYU bounce back, come out. Uh, and uh, Elijah's been known to have close to 100 points in that gym. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> this is Dave Rose's 13th season. If BYU wins one of two this week, they hope we hope they win both. If they win just one, he'll secure no worse than a third place finish in any league he's been in over thirteen years. Always twenty wins. The consistency, I hope, doesn't get taken for granted. The bottom line is to be that consistent over thirteen years, never out of a top trio, never shy of twenty wins, kind of always in that mix. It takes a lot of work to get that done. It does, and you can just tell and from people that I t- talk to that they've forgotten. They forgot what it was like. They, they've forgotten when I was here playing for Coach Cleveland. You know, we had a couple of great seasons. We had a nine-win season. That, that isn't even a possibility for the fans right now. They can't see it. I think with what happened in football, uh, they're actually taking a step back and saying, wait, that there is a possibility mm-hmm. that we can have a losing record at BYU. And uh, hopefully it doesn't get lost, but I think it does, unfortunately. What he's been able to do, um, you talk about – uh, injuries over the year, losing players, you always think, how will they rebuild? How will they reload? How will they get 20 wins? How will they do this? And he finds a way to do it. They're playing a little bit differently this year. Uh, so now he's not only doing it with different personnel, he's doing it with a different style. And what he does is is truly amazing. And you get outside and you talk to different coaches throughout the country and you talk to different fans, and they're truly amazed at what Coach Rose is able to do because they can just see it, that it's, it's impossible what he's done. And uh, sometimes you get here and and, and the fans don't recognize that. And uh, I understand that. You, you, you want something different. You want a, a new outcome. You want, But oftentimes it's, uh, it's pretty difficult when you're talking about, yeah, we want more than 20 wins, you know, going to the postseason, doing these different things. And so it's a, difficult, uh, it's a difficult conversation to have. I'm continually telling people just be careful. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot that's exciting and it's fun and there's a lot of people coming to these games and it's fun to watch and they're competitive and they're playing for each other and coach and just be careful. Last Thursday after the Pepperdine game, coach took some time to talk a bit about the Kyle Collinsworth story and you've got a great perspective on it too, knowing what Kyle has done and Dave wanted to make the point, you can go on a mission. You can play four years of college ball. In Kyle's case, you can even come back from an ACL and still make it to the highest levels of the game. And he wants his guys to know that's a possibility. Not to maybe be, this is me reading into it, don't be too impatient. Don't think it can't be done. But uh, you can, you know, play all four years for your school. You can go on a two-year mission. You can do a lot of really tough things and make it to the top. I think one thing with Kyle, um, obviously his... Uh, determination and visualization. I think that's been well documented. Uh, But Kyle surrounded himself with people that were educated and that told him 
not just what he wanted to hear, but the right things. And uh, oftentimes kids can find what they want to hear and then surround themselves with people that tell them what they want to hear. And that's dangerous because then you end up making uh, decisions that aren't really the right decision for you. It's what you want. It's what sounds good. But Kyle, in his case, surrounded himself with people that believed he could come back from his injury surrounded himself with people that believed he could make it to the NBA after a successful college career, surrounded himself with people that believed in his training, in his skill set, in his ability to uh, make an NBA roster with the skills that he had. And and that's part of what has you know allowed Kyle to do this, is he surrounded himself with people that were educated and listened to what they had to say, not just what he wanted to hear. It's a great story and, and so happy for Kyle. And uh, it's fun to watch. And then you talk about it's his his childhood, you know, hero playing yeah, with, you know, yeah, Derek. Yeah. It's just, it's really, really fun to watch. Well, great stuff, Terry. We look forward to more great stuff from you as we hit the road together. BYU in Portland tomorrow night from the Child Center. Terry Nash will be with me courtside as we bring you the Cougars and the Pilots. So, uh, Terry, thank you for coming in. We'll see you on the road. Sounds great, Greg. Looking forward to it. All right, that is uh, Terry Nashif coming up after the break. We go to the gridiron with BYU's new offensive line coach, a former national champion as a player at Auburn. His name is Ryan Pugh. Coach Pugh is coming up next. We continue. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYURadio.org, and the BYU Radio app. Back after this with Ryan Pugh. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, when Jeff Grimes began his tenure as the BYU Cougars' new offensive coordinator, he knew where he wanted to go to find his first offensive line coach. A career offensive lineman and offensive line coach himself, Grimes turned to one of his former players on the O-line at Auburn, Ryan Pugh. Uh, coach Pugh, Coach Grimes told me on this show a month and a half ago, quote, I always knew Ryan would be a great coach if he chose to go into it. Adding that, Ryan always had a great mind for the game and observing that as a player, Ryan often saw himself as a coach on the field. As a starting center at Auburn, Pugh helped the Tigers to a national championship and after graduation began his coaching career as a grad assistant with Coach Grimes at Auburn, then with Coach Grimes at Virginia Tech, then later with Coach Grimes at LSU with a solo stop at Cincy in between. Considering the amount of time they've spent together, Coach Grimes told me that he views Coach Pugh kind of like an oldest son of sorts. After leaving LSU, Coach Pugh got his first full-time assistant job at UT San Antonio, where he coached the offensive line for the last two seasons before leaving Texas for the Beehive State and BYU. A native of football-rich and gridiron-crazy Hoover, Alabama, Ryan Pugh is a former All-SEC pick and All-American and a former Carolina Panther as an undrafted free agent coming out of Auburn. It's a pleasure to welcome BYU's new offensive line coach, Ryan Pugh, into Studio 2 and behind the mic here on BYU Radio. Ryan, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, Greg. Sweet home, Alabama. And that was home, right, your whole life? Home for 22 years of my life, <laughs> uh, 22, 23 years. So it's been uh, – it's held a special place in my heart. My wife, being a student at Auburn and going to school there, she's adopted uh, the state of Alabama, and, and she loves it. And she's always says, I, well, I wish we could move back there. And I, say, I always say, well, I think I could move somewhere else. And then <laughs> – here we are in Utah. When I talked to Coach Grimes in that interview I mentioned a moment ago, he said uh, your dad was a coach, is that right? Yes, he was a high school football coach um, for 30 years in, in the city of Birmingham in Alabama, and now he's retired. And He just stays 
connected to the game through a nonprofit organization he runs in in Birmingham and, and trying to help the the schools of uh, Birmingham City help those athletes and um, cheerleaders and band members. He gives them an opportunity uh, to get scholarships, does leadership conferences, does mm-hmm. test prep stuff, does all kinds of things to just help give those um, young men and women of the city of Birmingham an opportunity to. Uh, go to school on scholarship. And so I think that's been, he's enjoyed being able to do that, um, retired. And so still staying around the game, uh, and athletics in general. And so he had a big impact in my life as well as Jeff. He's very much involved, um, just in, in my life and my wife's life and my mom and sister as well, but just close knit family who grew up around the, the game of football. Um, and also as a former wrestling coach himself, he, he, I got started wrestling when I was four. And so that I actually wrestled longer than I played football in my life. And it's been an interesting element to it. I started wrestling when I was four, um, started playing baseball when I was six, and then started playing football when I was in seventh grade. Ever so, any basketball for you? Or? I played basketball for a couple of years, wasn't very good, got in the way of wrestling. And so um, wrestling was my first love uh, as far as sports. And so not many. Not many kids probably start out at four years old wrestling, and uh, it was an interesting uh, way to start my sports career. But had it not been for the sport of wrestling, I probably wouldn't have been the offensive lineman that I am and probably have the mental and physical toughness it took to play all three sports for as long as I did and then to be able to uh, be successful in college and then on through life. I think that the sport of wrestling is as good a sport as you can play these days. And uh, for young young people, to get involved with. I think it's very uh, good as far as your mental and physical toughness and, and stamina and things of that nature. So you mentioned four years old. How young were you when you were competing? Four. I mean- yeah, I would wrestle up. So my I was always a bigger kid, and so that was why it was hard for me to play football growing up. But um, my dad was a wrestling coach um, as well as a football coach. And uh, so I would, at four years old, I was bigger than most four-year-olds. I would start, so I started wrestling up to the six, seven-year-olds. And so just started from there. And, you know, even then, even wrestling up, you know, we did the whole carry your birth certificate with you to prove how old I really am. <laughs> did that for wrestling and baseball, and so. Uh, but yeah, it was it was in- interesting. Um, it, it's funny. My wife and I are, are about to have our first child and our daughter any day now, and so we're um, we were going through some baby pictures of both of us, and we we're trying to guess what she's going to look like <laughs> and just having fun. And so, uh, but there's a lot of pictures of me when I was little wrestling, and so it's it's kind of fun to look back and see those things. Now, were, were you beating older kids? I was, I was. It was one of those. I I would I grew up in a wrestling room in a high school wrestling room while my dad was coaching. I would just it's free daycare, right? You just get to run around the mat, <laughs> and uh, so you just become part of the team at, at a young age. And so it was it was fun. That's where I kind of grew up in a coach's office and on the football field and in the wrestling room and things of that nature. When did your wrestling competition career end? Uh, senior year of high school um, was ended up being went undefeated my senior year, won state champ championship didn't get to wrestle as much because our football team ended up going to the state finals and so you miss about a month of the season in wrestling when they would cross over but mm. um it was it was special for me and my father uh to to win a state championship with him in the corner um had wrestled for one as a sophomore got injured as a junior um so it was a uh it took took four years and uh, I feel like it shouldn't have taken four years, but it did, and so. But it was a nice way to end my high school sports career. What did you play in baseball? I was a 
kind of played everywhere. I was a first baseman. I was a third baseman. I was a pitcher predominantly. Probably my strongest suit was pitching. Decent at that. Did you um, pitch into high school too? I mean, all the way yeah, through? Yeah, I, I, play, I played baseball until my junior year. I missed playing baseball my senior year, but I don't really ever regret it, hmm. giving it up. Um, it kind of, it was, baseball is one of those sports that it, it kind of passed me by because I didn't have time to travel and I didn't have, I, you know, when I got done with wrestling, I picked up a baseball glove. When I got done with baseball, I picked up my football pads. And so it was from one to the other and uh, never had a day off in six years of high school and junior high, but it was, um, it was fun. And I, looking back, it, it just it teaches you how to manage your time. I mean, I think there's so many lessons to be learned through sports these days and, and kids. And you see a lot of young men focus, just focusing on one sport. And we we tell young men all the time, man, play as many as you can because one day it's going to end and you're going to wish you could still play. But play as many sports as possible because you're going to get burned out if you just play football. Mm. Um, when you get to college, I never thought – I could ever play too much football because uh, I'd spent, I'd only played six years of it before I went to college and I'd wrestled since I was four. So I'd been wrestling for 14 years when I graduated high school. I'd only played football for six. And at the end of my freshman year, I remember I, I was fortunate enough to start as a true freshman at Auburn and we went to a bowl game. So we played 13 games and I got home on my first day off from August 1st. My fir- I just remember getting home January 2nd. Um, and I walked into my parents' living room, I laid down, and I think I slept for, I don't know, 12, 15 hours, and my parents woke up, and they're like, man, you're tired. And I looked. I just remember looking at my dad and saying, man, I'm tired of football. For I just need a break, you know? Yeah. Um, I never thought I would ever say that. So I think kids who just focus on one sport, at, at some point when it becomes more than just a sport, whenever you come to college and it's your avenue for getting your education played for it and, and a platform for a lot of great things. Um, I think people underestimate the amount of time and what it consumes mm. for you. Um, so I just encourage guys to play as many sports as possible because it's, it's something that's going to get one day, it's all going to come to an end and you're going to have to be men and you're going to have to be husbands and fathers. And that stuff is great and enjoyable too. But there's a lot of people who sit back and go, God, go back to college tomorrow and do it all over again. Yeah. How much of wrestling paid off as an O-lineman? I think more than doing any running or any weightlifting or any training, uh, any footwork training. I think it pays off more than anything. Um, two things, uh, you learn balance and you learn leverage. Um, you learn how to use your hips. Uh, you learn how to gain inside hand control. Uh, you learn how to maintain body position for extended periods of time that a lot of people don't understand about playing offensive line. And I think that um, while sheer mass and athleticism is is required to be great as an offensive lineman, if you don't know how to use your hips, if you don't know how to have balance, you don't know how to use your leverage and regain leverage quickly, I think that's what mm-hmm. wrestling teaches you. And I think that's what um, – and, and I talk to the guys that I coach now and, and that I, I have coached. You have to understand those things to be a great lineman. You can be good. You can. Um, but to be great, you have to understand leverage, balance, hand position, um, as well as mental and physical toughness. I think there's an aspect of the game that still hasn't changed. And so wrestling provided that because there's no one out there but you. And you learn that one wrong step, and it's, it's, you're, you can get embarrassed quickly. And so you learn how uh, to compete. And I learned how to compete starting at the age of four. And I think that's what leads me to be a competitor today uh, and wanting to be the best at whatever I do um, in life. It's not just football, uh, being the best husband, best father, 
uh, best role model for these young men, um, being someone they can lean on. But that all started because of the sport of wrestling, baseball, and football, and just gaining that. So Hoover High School, folks in this neck of the woods may or may not know what Hoover means, but in Alabama, Hoover is is a legendary name, really. If you go back, I think, from 2000 to now, I think 11 of the last 18 state championships in football. I actually only went to Hoover as a senior. So 2006 was your only Hoover season? It was, and we lost in the state finals. Since 2000, they've played in every state championship game except for two, and the only two they didn't play in, the other school in the city of Hoover played, Spain Park. I went to Oak Mountain High School as a freshman. That was where my father was the head coach at the time, and he always wanted to coach me. And and so whenever he – uh, when I was a freshman, I don't know that he he thought I would play as a freshman. I did, and so then uh, he want, just wanted to coach me. We moved to Spain Park, which if you're familiar with that area, we literally moved uh, like two miles uh, to a new house, to a new um, school district. So I, li- I went to Spain Park for a couple of years, um, had a lot of successful players, played with a lot of successful high school and college players um, there. And after my junior year, um, they had a coaching change there, and so my senior year, we just we moved and an opportunity to kind of um, travel all over the country, play for a, a team like Hoover. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw it as an opportunity uh, to play against and practice against the best players uh, in the state each day, and I think that was what motivated my dad and I to move over there. And, and my mom and sister, we all lived in a. It was the craziest story ever. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment, the four of us, um, for that whole year. And, and then my sister actually stayed at Spain Park. She didn't even move to Hoover. And so we put our other house up for sale and then and moved back after the school year was over. But it was it was unbelievable um, experience for me uh, to go there and to play that season, to be able to go to Oklahoma and, and play a game against a team who hadn't lost a home game in 10 – 10, 11 years, and then to play a team like that, Joe McKnight from John Curtis um, at home. I mean, we we were a very talented team. I think at the end of the season, we ended up basically we ran out of gas. I think we played like 17 games that year mm. and um, played eight or nine defending state champions. And so by the time we got to the finals, uh, we were worn out. You know, and, you guys had run the gauntlet. Yeah, we yeah. we had, and and we we played a very good Prattville team in the finals. They had about as many Division One players as we did at the time. And so um, their quarterback ended up playing at Vanderbilt for a long time and, and had several players that went on to play at Alabama and Auburn. But the uh, it was it was one of those deals where we, we, we just physically we ran out of gas after going for 17 weeks. Did you know when you were going to transfer to Hoover for your last year that it was going to be an MTV two-a-days year, that they were going to chronicle that season? Did you know that growing in? They had done the year before, so we weren't sure. They didn't know if they were going to do another season. And it was season two that you. Got. It was season yeah. two, my senior year. Um, that was, you know, it, that was an experience in itself. We didn't know if they were going to do another season. Um, it was kind of in the moment. You got to got used to going to school every day with a camera in your face and having a mic on, and you know, every for every camera, there's a three person crew. So it's they're up and down the, the hallways and in the classrooms and at lunch and. And following you as much as, as as what it portrayed on television. Um, Pros and cons. Um, distraction obviously is the cons for 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 young men who are seventeen, eighteen years old. I think that's a lot to take in at times. Who was into you coming out of Hoover and ultimately the decision to go to Auburn? 
I was, uh, again, I was fortunate to, to go through the process as the number one center in the country coming out of high school. Um, my dad, having been a coach, I was exposed to college recruiting at an early age, my sophomore year. Um, I didn't know what it, when University of Tennessee, actually Coach Fulmer was there and Jimmy Ray Stevens was the O-line coach. Matt Luke was the tight ends coach who's at Ole Miss now. Um, they, I just remember getting my first offer in the mail and I didn't really know what it was. I took it to my dad and I was like, what are they saying in this? Like, you know, it was just, it was, and he kind of looked and he's like, I, I guess they're offering you a scholarship. And so that happened as a spring after my sophomore season. And so going into my junior years when it started kind of uh, picking up for me and having the opportunity to go play in the SEC and, and the ACC and Big 10 and Big 12, a, a lot of places across the country. Um, we were able to, to go to see a lot of games and go see a lot of campuses and, and meet a lot of people that um, my dad had known for a long time, having come through and recruited players before me at his school and so and the, the places he had been. Um, so those relationships that were already built with him uh, and, and having met on myself and those guys kind of watching me grow up for years um, made the process a lot easier for me. Um, the hardest thing was at the end of the day having to call a lot of people that I knew really well and had a lot of respect for and, and telling them thank you but no thank you and, and to ultimately decide to go to Auburn. A lot of people think that it was probably a shoe-in being that my parents were born and raised in Auburn and dad went to school there and played for a short amount of time. But um, he did everything um, to try and not necessarily push me away from Auburn but to make sure that we didn't have an influence on me to go there. He wanted me to go where I wanted to go. Um, and because it was, it was the, my career. And, um, at the same time he was able to, to give me guidance. I think him and my mom both were able to give me guidance. And, and at the end of the day, we felt comfortable going to Auburn. It was, it was a unique situation because that's the, um, the year I signed was, uh, Nick Saban's first year at Alabama. He had just gotten the job from the Miami dolphins. And so, they had made a late push uh, on a lot of kids in the state of Alabama, and so um, it was it was intriguing. Just when you thought recruiting was over and had been over for five months, and then all of a sudden it gets opened back up, and here it goes again. And so um, I was very appreciative of of everything um, that I was offered coming out of high school, but it was it was through a lot of hard work. I mean, there's a lot of days that. Um, you know, you got to pick yourself up and go back to work and, and get those opportunities. But I was fortunate. Uh, there's no doubt about it because I was a bit of an overachiever. It wasn't It wasn't because I was a great athlete, I promise you that. Well, you were a four-year player at Auburn 2007 through 2010. And I hope it's okay to fast-forward to the 2010 season. It was the Cam Newton season, a 14-0 and year, eight and going 8-0 and in the SEC. Can anybody really conceive of how hard that is to do? So people ask me all the time, they, they say, you don't ever wear your rings. And partly because I've lost some weight, so they don't quite fit as, <laughs> as well. But they, when they see them, they, are always, they always immediately look at the national championship ring, which is, is huge. It's, it's, it's gaudy. It's what people – I mean, it's what everyone plays the sport to get. And uh, it's interesting because everyone – I tell them, they ask me which one I wear the most. Well, the one I wear the most is the SEC championship ring. I think that was the biggest accomplishment from – and it's interesting that you asked that question because going eight and zero in the SEC is really hard. Uh, you look back at the teams that have won it um, since two thousand and you know six. You, you can go all the way back to LSU who won it in in oh seven, and the run that the SEC made. Um, you know it was hard 
to go undefeated. And a lot of those teams didn't go undefeated. Um, and so to go 8-0 in, in the SEC, and especially the last two games, the way they panned out, and a lot of people remember the Alabama game. A lot of people remember the Georgia game. But, I mean, you got uh, – I was just telling somebody the other day, the Clemson game might have been the, the the deciding factor. I mean, we – we go to overtime with them and win by a field goal. They make the field goal and actually had an illegal snap at the end of the game, and the guy had to kick another one and missed it. Um, you could go to the Kentucky game where we <laughs> had to drive the ball 97, 96 yards, 94 yards, and took eight minutes off the clock at the end of the game, took a knee, and then kicked a game-winning field goal to win 37-34 um, against a, a, a Randall Cobb Kentucky team, um, beating South Carolina twice. Uh, you just look back. None of the games were necessarily just oh, those that was the easy one, you know. Um, Ryan Mallett, Arkansas game. If we don't, if Ryan Mallett doesn't get hurt in that game, <laughs> there, we still might be playing. And it might be a hundred uh, ninety-nine. Um, at the time, we had that was the record for most points scored in an SEC game at one hundred and six or five, I believe. And that was crazy to think then. Um, the the national championship game was a game in itself uh where we uh about it's, it's one of those deals where what could go wrong did go wrong at times and what went right did go right at times and so and it's an Oregon team that everyone thinks is like a machine right yeah, yeah. you know they everyone thought it was going to be an offensive juggernaut yeah. as far as points being scored people don't realize how many yards were in the game that was the record for the most yards in a national championship game it just there's a bunch of field goals and interceptions in the red zone and turnovers and things of that nature. But um, that was a special game in itself. I, I remember just never being nervous before a game uh, ever and ran out of plenty of tunnels um, in front of large crowds, <laughs> hostile crowds at times and, and home crowds. But when we came out of the tunnel in the national championship game that year, the the flash bulbs were overwhelming. You couldn't see, and that was the first time I experienced that as an athlete and as a coach. And so, when you people talk about the Super Bowl and, and the national championship game, it, it's a different level when it when you start talking about the media coverage and and the impact of the number of people that are watching the game. I think a lot of times we forget uh, as players and coaches mm-hmm. how many people truly tune into a game, and you start talking hundreds of millions of people. That's that's a lot of eyes, and so. Uh, I think that hits you about the time you run out of the tunnel and you can't yeah. really see. And so that was that was definitely interesting. But to be able to share that um that moment with the seniors who had played for four years, um I mean that was we had we had started a lot of football games. Jeff Grimes was part of that staff. Um we were telling stories just the other day in the offensive staff room. I mean, I, th- I think he threw a marker at me the other day in the staff room just being funny, and everyone was kind of looking at us like we were crazy. Like, he just threw a dry erase marker at him. And then he goes, well, it's the first time I've thrown one at him since the national championship game because he wouldn't look and pay attention. They want to watch the game. So um, we've got a lot of stories. Yeah. I mean, my wife pulled out some pictures from the locker room of him and I, and his 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 boys were both in there, and now – Looking fast forward eight nine years later, it's yeah. to see them growing up is kind of cool. You, you mentioned it so briefly there. Uh, we were just talking. You said they remembers the Alabama game. It bears noting that you were down twenty four nothing, and it was it may still be the biggest comeback in Auburn football to win that game twenty eight twenty seven. That's in Tuscaloosa too, right? Yeah, that was. We were down twenty four nothing, and there Mark Ingram is actually going to score to make it thirty one to nothing when he fumbles. Um, people. A lot of people don't remember that. I mean, the ball gets punched out on the 
15-yard line with him going in to score to make it 31 to nothing um, in front of about 104,000 of our dearest friends. Dearest friends. Yeah. They they love us down <laughs> there. And so um, – but it, it, that game – I just remember sitting on the sideline of that game down 24 to nothing waiting for something to happen uh, to turn our way. I mean it was just – it was – it was hard because we had already secured a spot in the SEC championship game the week before by beating Georgia. Um, you have the biggest game of the season to the fans in Alabama on the road, which is the hardest place uh, without a doubt right now to play in the country. Um, and then to go down 24 nothing, and then fight your way back is, is pretty incredible. I just remember we all sat on the sideline um, – you know, down right after we got that fumble, right before we got it, we were kind of looking around like, "This is, is this how it's gonna? Is this how we're gonna go out?" You know, after all eleven in a row, and now this one, the one that means the most to everyone in the state, uh, we can't go out like this. And so we get the ball and we score a touchdown right before half, and then come out in the second half and and scored on our first possession. And and really being down ten was, we felt. We felt good. We felt like we we could come back, and so then we just kept mounting, scoring points, and and, and ended up going up twenty eight twenty four, and just kind of hanging on right there at the end. But you know, going forward on fourth down at midfield late in the game uh, a couple times, uh, it's it's those are the difference. But that that game is one you won't ever forget. Thirty seconds on Cam Newton. Great football player, great teammate. Um, Loves to play the game uh, of football. Good person. Um, a lot. Of, everyone asked me that question. I, I couldn't think of a guy. I only played one year with him at Auburn, but to come in in one year and um, for it to be like you never were a part of the, never wasn't a part of the team. I think is saying something about him. I think he went through a lot in his career prior to getting to Auburn that uh, a lot of people don't go through that make you a better person. And and obviously, I think he has a great impact on people these days. But um, Great teammate, great player. I couldn't say a negative word about him, and, and he's always been a great ambassador for Auburn. I mentioned in our intro that Coach Grimes thought you'd always be a great coach because you were kind of one on the field. You had your NFL career with the Panthers as an undrafted. Once that was done, did you know this was where you're headed next? Yeah, you know, I got cut on Saturday, uh, Labor Day weekend, and was coaching on Sunday in Birmingham. Um, told myself going into it, it's easier, I think, to walk away from the game when when you win a national championship as a senior. Um, I told myself I'd do, I would give it my best shot uh, to make the team. Um, when I didn't, moved right on and went. Called my dad, packed everything up, and said, "Hey, I'm coming back to Birmingham to coach football." And coached high school football that year, and then called Jeff the next year. Right after the season was over, I needed to go back to school and I had one class left I needed to finish for my degree and. Went back to school in January and said, hey, if you'll give me a month, I can finish this thesis, thesis and then uh, I'll be ready to coach football. And he said, you sure? And I said, yeah, that's <laughs> what I want to do. And so hadn't looked back since and got a lot of great memories. With Coach Grimes at Auburn as a player and coach, and then, of course, as a grad assistant coach with him, with him at Vatech, solo at Cincy, with him at LSU, two years by yourself at San Antonio, now to BYU back with Coach Grimes. What about Coach Grimes makes him – made him a good mentor and makes him a good colleague? Uh, I think he's a special person um, more than anything. He's a great football coach, great mind. Uh, He's the best offensive line coach in the country. Um, He's going to be 
one of the best offensive coordinators in the country. I think he's got the unbelievable ability to lead people, lead young men. Um, he's not afraid to think outside the box. I think that's what he taught me more, more than anything as a coach is to not be in, not be afraid of uh, think outside the box and do things differently. I think his ability to lead young men, though, is is what is the impact he had on me and is the impact he's having right now on the men we're coaching. And um, if it weren't for him, I don't know that I would be in the position I am uh, today. I know for a fact it wouldn't be. I wouldn't be in Provo. Um, so I'm always thankful for that. Um, but he always talked about how special Provo was in his time here previously, uh, the other times. But as far as a, a mentor for me, I think he's had as much of an impact for me off the field as he has on the field as a coach, how to be a leader, how to be a great husband, how to be a great father, how to have impact on these young men. I think the thing that he does the most for everybody that he works with is he challenges you to be a better coach and a better person every day. And I think if at any point in your career, if you're not challenged to be the best you can be every day, um, and it's not always comfortable, it's not always great. I think he and I have had a lot of hard conversations. Um, we're best of friends, but at, at times, um, you butt heads and, and you have differences of opinion, but the way you go about solving those issues, the way you go about, um, learning from either mistakes or doing something different, however it may be, he has the uncanny ability to, to get through those and strengthen a relationship while doing it. Mm. And, and I think that's very special. And so he's, there's a reason I've followed him to Virginia, to <laughs> Baton Rouge and to Provo, Utah, because I believe in him. But, um, I think that, it's safe to say he believes in me too. And I think that's what gives me the confidence that I can go out and be the best coach and, and person I can be, because I think that's the impact he had on me as a player. He believed in me as a player. And if you ask anyone who plays for him, I think they would all say the same thing. How are you liking life in Provo and the life at BYU? So far, so good. Um, it's been, the people are very welcoming. I, I tell people all the time, I come from the the Bible Belt in Birmingham and south in the southeastern United States, so very conservative part of the country. Um, the first Sunday uh, in Provo, I got up and everything was closed. It kind of reminded me of being back home. Um, you know, my wife and I are from very uh, conservative areas, and so living up here, the people seem just like they are down in the south, very hospitable, very nice, would do anything in the world for us. Uh, we've got great neighbors. Um, and so, so far it's been great on that end. And then coach Kalani and, and his staff and, and the, the administration at BYU has been second to none. Um, everything they've done to help get us situated and then allowing us to do our jobs is, is, is something special because I've, I've seen it done differently everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, that's one good thing in my young career. I've, I've been a lot of places. I've worked for a lot of successful head coaches and coach Satake is going to be very successful as a head coach because of the, the type of person he is. Um, and, and I think that's what makes this place so special is the people. Your wife is a Kathy Lee. She could have held out for Regis, but she married a Ryan. Uh, <laughs> you guys are expecting your first child, the daughter, any, any minute now. Yeah. You know, she's 38 weeks pregnant tomorrow and, um, we're excited. We couldn't, you know, we're ready to, for our daughter to be here. It's the lot, as is anything, the closer it gets, the more anxious you become and more excited you become. And I think that's for us. I think we're just ready for her to be here and, uh, hope, pray that she's healthy and mom's healthy. And so we're, we're always 
praying for that. And so I think that's going to be the next chapter in our life, but, um, always enjoy doing it here in Provo and, and the people that have been around us. Again, I can't say enough great things about our experience so far. Well, best of luck in fatherhood and to you both in parenthood. As we wrap up, one quick football question about BYU X's and O's, if you will. Uh, your expectations, your and Coach Grimes' expectations for the O-line group in 2018? Um, to be a physically dominating group, I think uh, establishing the line of scrimmage each and every week. Um, we've always wanted – in this in this game and in this profession, you, you're as good as your last game, and you're always – you are what you put on tape, and I think what other people look at. And so – it hasn't changed from wherever we've been. Our expectations here are very high uh, of the offensive line group um, and always will be. Um, but when the other team turns the tape on, I think they should be able to say that, man, that group jumps off the tape. Uh, they make them go uh, selfishly. That's what I want our group to be. Um, we want to be the big brothers of the team, the offense. Um, but sh- through our work ethic and showing our leadership ability, I think that way – I've been a part of teams who've been very successful. And when the offensive line um, is able to control the line of scrimmage and do their job at a high rate, um, you're going to be very successful. And so I, that's that's my expectation for them. Uh, and, and they know that, and, and they'll get to know that very soon when we get out on the grass and start coaching, and they'll see the passion that we coach with. And um, whether it be myself or, or Coach Grimes or Dallas Reynolds, I think there's there's so many – great offensive line minds in that in our room right now and our staff that these these young men can can gain experience from and i think that's an unbelievable asset for them well be long now spring ball just around the corner ryan Pugh, thank you for coming in and letting us uh, learn about your life and career it's been a pleasure thank you all right that's the new offensive line coach for byu ryan Pugh. we're taking a break when we come back former cougar hoopster trent playstead joining us this is behind the mic with greg grubel on byu radio sirius xm 143 BYURadio.org and the BYU Radio app back after this. Did you know that BYU has more than 80 alumni chapters worldwide? It's a way to connect with other alumni, help students in need, and help spread the influence of the Y all around the world. Most places have chapters where you live, and there are also chapters based on what your major was or even your profession. And chapters do great things, like helping provide financial aid for more than 400 BYU students this year. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. BYU alumni, connected for good. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, when Dave Rose took over as BYU head coach in the 2005-06 season, his starting center was a redshirt freshman named Trent Playstead. In Rose's first season, BYU was picked to finish ninth in the nine-team Mountain West Conference. But Rose, Playstead, and the Cougars finished instead tied for second. And on the heels of a 9-21 season, they went 20-9 the first of 13 consecutive 20-win seasons for Coach Rose and the Cougs. That 20-9 campaign ended with a trip to the NIT, followed by two consecutive NCAA tournament appearances as Playstead finished either first or second on the team in scoring in all three of those seasons. After his redshirt junior season, Trent opted for the NBA draft and was a second-round pick of the Sonics, who traded him to Detroit before Trent began an overseas career that lasted 10 seasons. After a decade spent traveling the world, Trent has settled down back here in Utah 
and has settled in here in Studio 2 as we go behind the mic in our Catching Up with the Cougars segment, sponsored by BYU Alumni, connected for good. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. Trent, welcome in and welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. That seems like such a long time ago that you brought all that up. Coach Rose is... Was a was a young head coach then. Now he's <laughs> arguably the best head coach in BYU history. So it's it's been a while. Well, let's go back to that. Do you remember Coach Rose's reaction or response to that ninth place pick in his first season? Well, if you guys know Coach Rose, he's one of the most competitive people you're ever going to meet. And I just remember him saying, "Let them say what they want on the outside. On the inside, we're here to win, and we're going to work that way." And I remember that summer he got that job, and man, we got after it. We all got bigger, stronger, faster, and. And we weren't scared of anybody. And so we went out there and we, we competed and, you know, the results were what they were. What are your most uh, poignant memories of that season, your first real full playing season at BYU? Oh, man, that was it was such a great time. I mean, it's, it's easy to play when the expectations are so low. And that's kind of what's happened in recent years. The expectations have gotten to be so high on these kids that I think they feel a lot of pressure. But when I was there, you know, we were picked ninth. I mean, if we would have finished fifth, people would have been pumped. You know what I mean? So we played with no expectations on us, and we went out there and had fun. And and obviously we had to do the work and put in the effort, which we did, and Coach Rose made sure we did that. But it was a great time and a, a great, great, great accomplishment for us at that time. Now you led that team in scoring in your redshirt freshman season. Do you know who was second on the team in points that, that year? Brock Richner, I'd imagine. Brock Richner is correct. And and so Brock is, he, he was a walk-on. Uh, to the team, and kind of the fact that he was the second leading scorer on that team kind of embodied what you were about, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And if you guys know Brock, man, he was a workhorse, and he just he's one of the most positive people you're ever going to be around. He was our senior leader on that team, and we really needed him. And you know, I got a lot of accolades that year for being a good freshman, but Brock was really the heart and soul of that team. And and anybody who knows basketball knows. That. I remember you picking him as you know first team All Mount West that year, which he deserved. And uh, I love the guy, and I just saw him the other day at a basketball game, and, you know, he's the same guy he's always been, just really happy, really happy-go-lucky, and just a great individual. Your first game of that year was, ironically, a loss to LMU, a later conference colleague here at home. You remember the first win, where it happened? I think it was Washington State. It was Washington State. It was in Spokane, so neutral yeah. floor, but close enough to Wazoo. But yeah, it was in Spokane. And uh, I still remember standing outside the locker room and the noise emanating from that room with win number one. Oh, yeah. And that was when a tradition was formed. I mean, we, we won at Washington, or it was in Spokane. We won against Washington State. And anybody knows Coach Rose, he's a pretty, you know, somewhat reserved guy. And, uh, we won, and we were all waiting for him in the locker room, and he just comes storming in the locker room, jumping up and down because he was so excited. And just about every t- every game since then, that's kind of what he's done. And it was just a, it was a great feeling. It was like, you know, that was the start of something special in the BYU basketball history, and yeah. I was just glad I got to be a part of it and, you know, kind of be part of the foundation a little bit. Now, that was your first full season, but your second season as a Cougar because your true freshman season was that 9-21 and campaign. You got only a few games in before you got put on the shelf uh, with an injury. But uh, quite the contrast from nine wins one season to nine losses the next year. Yeah, I mean that nine and twenty-one year we we went to the nine invitational and that was a that was a cruel card to be dealt. I think we matched up with North Carolina in the very first game. I didn't think we could get the ball past half court to be quite honest. But but yeah, it was, it was a major turn of events. And so, and like I said, that was that was a testament to the new culture that Coach Rose brought in there. I mean, he was all about hard work and like, listen, we're going to get in here, we're going to get our work in, and we're going to get out of here. You know, what I mean, and he was 
pedal to the metal all the time. Coach Rose was really, really intense, and and it was hard, but man, it it, it paid off, and we were really excited about it. So that nine and twenty one season was part of an NCAA tournament drought, a small one, and it continued the next year. You went to NIT, which is actually kind of a victory in and of itself, getting twenty wins, going to the postseason, losing at Houston. But then it was back to the dance in your next year, and you got there in your last two years, making it back to the dance with Coach Rose. Looking back on that, uh, how do you remember the accomplishment? Well, I mean, those seasons were, I mean, they were amazing because we, we were top 25, I think, ranked both years. We won the conference. We won the Mountain West Conference. And if if people remember those days in the Mountain West, that was maybe the height. It, maybe it was Jimmer's years were maybe even a little bit better. But, I mean, we were playing Air Force was a top 10 team at one time. I mean, there was San Diego State was so good. New Mexico was so good. I mean, there were four or five teams, UNLV. So to to win that like we did, I mean, we ran away with the thing we were like 14 and 2 we lost two conference games or something like that and so we won the conference and we got like eight or nine seed in the tournament which is for BYU it's been something that's hasn't happened in a long time except for since the Jimmer days and and so yeah I mean that was a major accomplishment I remember going up there and ringing the victory bell cutting down the nets that whole <laughs> stuff I mean those are those are great times so I, I wish that the kids that are here today could experience that. I hope they will. I, I think they're building towards that, and I hope they continue to progress. You were last season. You again. You were second in scoring that year to, to Lee Kamar, but really you were so close. I think seven points separated the two of you in total scoring that year. Your year with Lee was Jimmer's freshman year, and maybe some people remember, some don't, that uh, Ben Murdoch was the 35-game starter at point guard that year, and Jimmer came off the bench in every game. Yeah, and, and, and that's just the culture to the – a testament to the culture of the program. I mean, we had a veteran team that year. I mean, it was me and Lee who had basically played since we were freshmen. We had, a, I mean, we, I was a junior, Lee was a junior, but man, we had a lot of games under our belt. And I think Sam Burgess was another starter. Started who was, 35 games, yep. Every, I mean, he yep. was a senior and, you know, Ben was a senior and I, I don't, Jonathan Tavernari was, I think, our wild card that year. So yep. we had a really veteran group and uh, Jimmer was really good. I mean, if... <laughs> I'm not trying to be critical of Jimmer harking back to his freshman days, but when he showed up, he was a little bit, and I think he'd admit this, he was maybe a little bit on the pudgy side. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he wasn't the Jimmer we all know now, but man, he worked hard and he was such a talented kid. And you, know, you could see him practice every day how talented he was. And once he got into shape, I mean, it was just a matter of time before he blossomed, which he obviously did, and just you know gave rise to an amazing player. But that was more of me and Lee's team. And you know, we were the captains of that squad, and it was just, man, it was so fun to be be a captain at BYU, and it was everything I hoped and dreamed. You had three full playing seasons, but four seasons in the program. We take out that uh, that freshman year with injury. So you'd been here four years when you decided to go to the draft uh, as as technically a junior, but in years, I guess, a senior. Uh, looking back on that, all, uh, all the factors that went into it, would you make the same decision today? Yeah, I mean, I have no regrets about the decision I made. I mean, I, the things I waited when I made the decision was, number one, I was graduated from college. I mean, I, I had my degree in hand. And number two is, if you look at the draft and the history of it, there's not a lot of seniors that get drafted. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And so, I mean, I, I felt like that was my best opportunity to go and have a professional career. And obviously, I went. I got drafted, and then, then some unfortunate things happened. I hurt my back that first year, which kind of derailed my NBA hopes. But, you know, I mean, who knows? Hindsight's twenty twenty. But when I weighed the decision at the time, I guess it was controversial to a lot of people. To me, it really wasn't. Um, but, no, I had a great career, and I'm really proud of the career I had. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything. You had a decade-long career overseas. How easy is it for you to tick off all the countries and not miss any of them right now? 
Yeah, if if I'm talking about the countries I visit, oh gosh, I couldn't. There's, it's <laughs> it's in the twenty, twenty five, maybe almost thirty. Like it, it, I would be hard pressed to go ahead and tick it all off. So you played for teams in which countries? So let's go in chronological order. So first was Italy, got hurt. Croatia, Lithuania. Here we go. Ukraine, Turkey, France, Germany. Back to France, back to Lithuania, back to Germany. And then to Japan the last two years. The Lithuania team, is it not the same team Brandon Davies is at right now? The first year it was, Zal And man, yeah. they were just a monster. And Brandon Davies is having a, himself a heck of a year over there. And they're having, a, they're having a great, great season. And he's doing great in the EuroLeague. And I'm really proud of him. And he's going to have a great career moving forward. But you have uh, hung up the high tops. I have. I have hung up the high tops. I'm now a, a loan officer at First Colony Mortgage doing home loans. So I'm I'm starting with new things, and I'm excited about it. My wife is really excited about it because she loves to be home and in America in her home. So it's a little bit nerve-wracking, but I'm also you know looking forward to the future. And even with a foot or two of snow this week, you're happy being back in Utah. <laughs> well, listen, my, my daughter is like just a, a daredevil. She loves sledding. So we went sledding yesterday, and like... <laughs> We were, everyone was all nervous about her going by herself, but I put her on that sled and I pushed her down the hill, and man, she was she was living the dream. So, <laughs> so you try to find ways to, to to see the positives of the snow, and it's not my favorite, but man, she loves yeah. it. So, what do I care? All right, from the past to the present, uh, a thought or two from you on the outlook for this stretch run into Las Vegas for this uh, 2017-18 BYU basketball program. Well, I mean, as we discussed a little bit before the show, I mean, at this point in the year, I mean, their their NCAA tournament hopes have kind of gone off the rails to some degree and what you're hoping for is a run in the conference tournament so right now it's all about this team gaining confidence so they could get ready for that tournament and have the best chance they can to run the table I mean wins and losses you want to win obviously that builds confidence but we want them to gain as much confidence as they had can heading into Las Vegas and that's the main objective well Trent great catching up with you I know we'll do this again uh, in the future thanks for stopping in studio too and uh, jumping in behind the mic catching us up on what you're doing now and reliving a few of your BYU sports memories. Time went quick, but we'll do it again, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, that is Trent Playstead, former BYU and overseas hoopster, now back in town, and that'll do it for Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel tonight. Coming up next week, one of BYU's newest football coaches, running backs coach A.J. Stewart will be on next week's show. So listen for that as we come back in Behind the Mic next Wednesday at 6 o'clock Mountain Time, 8 o'clock Eastern, right here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, byuradio.org, and the BYU Radio app. Good night.